if employers and employees take the steps to change workplace culture so that harassment doesn't happen, unwelcome behavior doesn't happen, it will help everyone. A quick reminder that we have launched our two-in-one fundraiser to raise funds for my upcoming Climate Ride event, which is my strategy of choice to raise funds in the fight against climate change alongside our membership drive for the show, including incentives like exclusive t-shirt and hoodies that we only make available during these drives. So to check out the campaign, you can visit bestoftheleft.com slash winter17 or just find the big banner right on our homepage. And now, welcome to the award-winning Best of the Left podcast with clips today from On the Media, Back Talk from Bitch Media, The Ezra Klein Show, Counterspin, The Young Turks, Off Kilter, and The Breach. To read the news over the past two weeks is to get the sense that at least in the nation's most elite precincts, the party's finally over. Hollywood director James Toback now being accused by at least 38 women of sexual harassment and assault. Lockhart Steele fired from Vox Media after allegations of sexual harassment on which he admitted his guilt. Celebrity chef John Besh now accused of allowing a toxic culture in his restaurants, from the kitchens to the front offices. Wall Street Journal says that a Fidelity Investments tech fund manager has resigned. Bill O'Reilly struck a $32 million agreement with a longtime network analyst to settle allegations of sexual misconduct. Amazon's Roy Price also resigned today after being put on leave last week after an allegation of sexual Five harassment. Five women say Mark Halperin sexually harassed them while he was an executive at ABC News. Since the news of disgraced Miramax co-founder Harvey Weinstein's sexual predations, accusations have been lodged and apologies issued from men in Hollywood, journalism, the food industry, and yes, even the presidency. President George H.W. Bush is responding to allegations being made by an actress who is accusing him of sexual Assault. And countless others. Leon Wieseltier, editor at the New Republic for three decades, accused of sexual harassment. Nickelodeon producer Chris Savino, Silicon Valley tech evangelist Robert Scoble, Ben Affleck, Ely Wiesel. Suddenly, the silence women kept to hold on to a job or advance in one is now a price too high to pay. Millions of women joining the Me Too campaign to speak out about sexual harassment and assault. The campaign began with actress Alyssa Milano, who tweeted, quote, if all the women who have been sexually harassed or assaulted wrote Me Too as a status, we might give people a sense of the magnitude of the problem. Suddenly, what was always dismissed as a regrettable occupational hazard is acknowledged as a crime. It certainly seems as if we're in a moment. It seems. Lynn Farley is a journalist, author, and coiner of the phrase sexual harassment. It was the mid-70s. She was teaching a field study course at Cornell on women in work and decided to hold a consciousness-raising session with her students to talk about their experiences on the job. And uh, be warned, there is some graphic language in her account. Every single one of these kids had already had an experience of having either been forced to quit a job or been fired because they had rejected the sexual overtures of a boss, a manager, or whatever. So when I left the class, I thought that we needed to have a name for what 
this phenomenon was. We all needed to be talking about the same thing. And so I went to my colleagues at work. I went to other women. We brainstormed. We just couldn't come up with the right phrase. I thought, well, the closest I can get is sexual harassment of women at work. Everything from phrases that reference sex to touching all the way up to forced sexual relations. It runs the whole gamut. My understanding is that it wasn't taken seriously as an occupational hazard before it had a name. That's true. Everybody dealt with it differently. Women didn't basically understand that they were all experiencing the same thing. It was something that we all talked about, but because we didn't have a name, we didn't know we were all talking about the same thing. Your work, your phrase, drew some huge attention thanks to a 1975 New York Times article called Women Begin to Speak Out Against Sexual Harassment at Work. And by the end of the 70s, you'd written a book on it called Sexual Shakedown, and that was turned into a documentary narrated by Ed Asner. Your ideas were spreading, but was right. society changing too? You started to see lawsuits. The Equal Employment Opportunity Commission, you know, went into high gear. They came up with their own guidelines so that women could bring suits, and women did bring suits. Michael Hausfeld, a very well-known attorney, took the case of Diane Williams, a black woman who sued the Justice Department. It was a very early case. Did she win? Yes, she did. Williams versus Saxby. It was one of the landmark cases that set the direction for sexual harassment law to this day. It was embraced by corporations and businesses. The Workplace Hustle, the movie that you referenced earlier with Ed Asner, mm -hmm. uh, that was shown as a training film practically by every major corporation in America. You wrote last week in the New York Times op-ed that corporations have stolen the term, that they've made it bloodless. Sexual harassment has become a phrase that we don't really understand. We don't really grasp what it means to be a secretary and to have your boss walk in every morning and say, hiya tits, how are they hanging today? Mm. This is what a secretary told me. This was her life. And she finally quit. And the point I'm trying to make here is we have to tell the details. People are shocked when they find out that the guy is coming in at noon and saying, okay, honey, meet me in the back room. I want a blowjob. But you see what I'm saying? That point needs to be made that we are not permitting the details, mm. the reality of sexual harassment at the public level. And so people do not understand how serious it is. They think all oh, these women are being frivolous. It's not frivolous. You know, if this is going to be made a condition of your employment, then the country needs to know that and not just cover it up with a polite phrase of sexual harassment. But beyond behavior like that, you have young girls, working class kids for the most part, trying to get jobs in fast food places because they have to work. And you have fast food managers systematically using sexual harassment to keep turnover high so they don't have to unionize. They don't have to give higher wages. You could go out and write a blockbuster book about it tomorrow. It's one of the huge scandals going on in America today. So this is what you mean when you say 
The phrase and the concept needs to return to the ugly thing that it is, that it's been cleansed because polite society doesn't want to talk about what is an unspeakable kind of (laughs) transgression. Let's put it that way. That's right. People are saying, but we can't print that. That's one reason that you see sexual harassment being defanged. But the other reason is we have not been able in 40 years to change the basic dynamic at work that fosters sexual harassment. If we had more women managers, supervisors, bosses, this problem would slowly disappear. It's all well and good that we have all these actresses, famous names, household icons coming forward. But this whole thing about the casting couch in Hollywood, it's explosive now, but it's really old news. It's old news, but I was talking to someone who has studied the history of Hollywood for a long time, and especially Hollywood gossip, and what she observed is that through the decades, gossip rags have always been obsessed with women's sexuality, but now the gaze has moved to the abuser. So the parade of starlets, but not just starlets, they're offering precisely the details in many cases that you say we need to have an informed discussion and move forward. Do you see this as a a real change? Because she has never seen this before. Well, I think if we can stick with the stories and the truth of the stories, yes, it's a big leap forward for the issue. But nobody pays any attention to the kids at the fast food places all across the country. How does Angelina Jolie being sexually harassed by Harvey Weinstein or Gretchen Carlson at Fox, how do they help these kids at McDonald's? How does that help them? Nobody cares about them. The only reason we're getting publicity now is because it's some of the major actresses in the movie industry. So everybody's, oh, 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 and all excited. And I'm not saying it's not valuable, okay? Mm-hmm. But at the same time, I can look around and point to all these 15, 16-year-old girls being taught right away. The only way you're going to get ahead in this world, Kitty, is if you put out, if you have sex with the boss, or you let him feel you up. Nobody gives a damn. is being attributed to the actress Alyssa Milano. Um, But uh, I'm reading here an article uh, on Ebony that explains that uh, the activist Tarana Burke, who uh, is a black woman, actually created uh, Me Too uh, as a grassroots movement to aid sexual assault survivors uh, like a decade ago. Here's a quote that she gave to Ebony. She said, it wasn't built to be a viral campaign or a hashtag that is here today and forgotten tomorrow. It was a catchphrase to be used from survivor to survivor to let folks know that they were not alone and that a movement for radical healing was happening and possible. And so um, uh, Burke has expressed that she... uh, 
feels really positively about uh, what has happened with the hashtag Me Too over the past weekend. And I'm not implying that I think Alyssa Milano like intentionally ripped her off, but more that there is a, a lack of like historical social memory around these kinds of moments. Because I feel like it wasn't that long ago that Yes, All Men was going on. And um, as uh, Sadie Doyle has written in Elle and as Lindy West has also written in the New York Times this week, um, you know, these social justice, uh, social media rooted grassroots movements um, are sort of cyclical. And there is this problem uh, as a uh, Tarana Burke said of it um, being here today and gone tomorrow. So, like, what is to come of all of these uh, Me Too hashtags? Um, and so what was happening was over the weekend that a lot of um, sexual assault and sexual harassment survivors were tweeting either their stories or maybe just the hashtag Me Too. But sort of the idea behind it was that um, if anyone who if anyone who has been sexually harassed or assaulted tweets me too then other people will have a sense of the immensity of the scope of sexual abuse uh you know worldwide and i totally um recognize how important social media can be to organizing and to finding community and to having conversations or to reporting information that might not otherwise be reported. But I feel like the only, per like, frankly, I feel like the only person who could say, oh, I didn't realize sexual assault or sexual harassment was so widespread is a, is a man. And uh, I guess I feel like and again, uh, like this has been echoed by Sadie Doyle and by Lindy West and by many other writers. Um, there is this aspect of Me Too that I think is troubling because it's essentially asking survivors to make themselves vulnerable, to out themselves, uh, just to be believed, just so that survivors can be believed, like not even so that legislation can happen around sexual assault, not even so that people who assault women will be brought to trial more efficiently. It's like this whole movement seems to be serving the purpose of just getting men to believe that sexual abuse and sexual harassment happens all the time. and. Um, I just wish that it didn't take survivors making themselves publicly vulnerable for people to pay attention or to believe that sexual abuse and sexual harassment are so widespread. It, and because it isn't just like um, letting men know that this is happening to people they know, but it's I think it's also supposed to like be like, um, uh, what's the phrase I'm thinking of? Like, um, like the the mass, like the so that that. So many people are saying this, like that. That yeah, it's a large yeah. number. So we, that's why we should notice, take notice of it. But uh, I mean, like, but for women, it's like we've known aren't we've never not known sexual harassment or sexual assault, like to an extent, right? Like, I yeah. in my personal life, I cannot think of one woman that I would know who has never been sexually harassed or sexually assaulted. Honestly, like seriously. Right. Um, yes. It's just something that like we innately know. And so it, it isn't even just that like um, women have to bear the responsibility then of coming forward and saying, hey, this has this happened to me and, um, you know, doing that type of emotional labor. Uh, but then like we also have to like show how we're being affected like en masse, like as a, as a gigantic group. But like 
we're so familiarized with this notion that like we will like at one point in our life be um you know at the other end of a sexual harassment or sexual assault that's just how it is to be in a patriarchal world right um yeah and that like and that when we have to perform this for people because they don't understand that that's i think what was kind of like icky about it or like um felt really unproductive it's like like why can't why isn't it just that like just the fact that even if it didn't happen to literally every single woman who's ever been born um on the face of this earth um even if it just <laughs> happens like two women you know like we should take it very seriously because like somebody's being um marginalized or hurt on something that like they can't control um you know like th- th- by the fact that like they are a certain gender so it's like it's like why do we it's kind of like it, it, i mean in a way it kind of reflects like why we have to re- like remind um people on a white supremacist um culture that black lives matter right mm-hmm. um i mean like i think that's different because uh, that that came from a place of like um let's like let's, let's talk about what it means to say black lives matter and like in this culture in this society but for this i think that like for women it they're saying it in a way where it's just like i matter because i'm telling you a secret about myself you know about how i was like violated in a very intimate way and mm-hmm. I think that like that this onus that's being put on women to like share that in order to like um, gain empathy, to like create culture change, um, really speaks to like how deeply ingrained misogyny is in our culture. That like we have to like bear ourselves um, in order to like in a way beg. Because me too, me too c- can be like hand raising power, you know. But me too can also feel like oh fuck me too. You know, mm-hmm. like, oh, fuck, let, let me show you this wound I have um, from this really horrific thing so that you can maybe feel an ounce of empathy for what I'm going through. And that so maybe you can think about your own behavior or the behavior of like other men in your lives and how it affects women. Um, and I and I, I think that like, I'm not, I mean, I think it's a good start to a conversation, but it needs like you're saying, what more is it than the hashtag? So you have this moment where where all this happens and the Democratic Party, which in, in theory is more open to these kinds of questions, complaints to in theory is more uh, committed to this kind of social progress. It's leading male politicians treat Anita Hill terribly. Then you have in 1992, the year of the woman in elections, but also Bill Clinton gets elected. Sure does. And Clinton himself, I mean, at the time, I think is seen as a flanderer. But subsequently, there's the Juanita Broderick uh, allegations, which I think are a pretty hard to dismiss accusation of rape or certainly an allegation of rape that has not been disproven right. uh, in any significant way. The the incredible abuse of power with Monica Lewinsky yep. and the, the Democratic Party coalesces around Clinton, too. 
Right. This is one of the horrors of that timing. So the other the other impact, I, I should be clear about what Anita Hill does when she testifies about sexual harassment. At that point, that behavior, the sort of sexual objectification and degradation of anybody, but it very often happens because men had more have more power than women in, in workplaces, is viewed as not just a sort of individualized behavioral thing, locker room talk, the way men are, but as a behavior, and this is the first time that we really start to grapple with this in the national conversation, a behavior that does material damage to women in the public sphere, women as a class. And this conversation is revelatory. And it does alter the left's view of the many ways that it needs to begin to address gender inequality. This, you know, 20 and 30 years after the women's movement has has, you know, sort of exploded gender relations in certain ways. Then Bill Clinton is elected. And it's complicated because there's true relief. It's been 12 years of Republican presidential administrations and also years in which the Republican Party has sort of melded with the religious right um, and done tremendous damage in eroding uh, women's reproductive rights really focused on an anti-abortion movement that's grown hugely and is threatening abortion rights. And here's a president who is friendly to reproductive autonomy, who appoints Ruth Bader Ginsburg to the Supreme Court, who has a wife who, and this mattered, this was really important when Bill Clinton was elected in 92. The way the year of the woman initially corresponded to the election of Bill Clinton was that he had sold himself historically as part of a two-for-one presidency. Because his wife at that point was regarded, first of all, she was just unprecedented in terms of her comparable power or comparable credentials to her husband. She was a lawyer. She was a groundbreaking lawyer in Arkansas. Um, she was... She had worked for the Children's Defense Fund. She was seen as extremely politically and... um seen then, I think, incorrectly, but seen as a real kind of left-wing radical and a feminist. And that didn't have precedence in the office of the First Lady. And feminists loved, many of them, loved Hillary Clinton. And the idea that her husband had sold them as equals was felt in its own way as kind of revolutionary. And so here's this guy, and feminists and many on the left have all kinds of reasons to love him, And then very quickly in these years, after we're having this new kind of conversation, his behavior with women works to erode the assuredness with which we're talking about all this stuff. And so you do have feminists. Gloria Steinem defended Bill Clinton in The New York Times, saying that the relationship with Monica Lewinsky did not count as sexual harassment. I think she was wrong about that. The Juanita Broderick story is is interesting because I think at the time, and I was in high school and college, I was in high school when Bill Clinton was elected and in college, and the degree to which I was engaged in this conversation was probably less than at any other time in my life. I sort of generally was like, yay, I love Bill Clinton, and that, you know, I wasn't, it wasn't the moment of extreme political engagement to me. So I'm not sure if I am... Um, speaking accurately about the general feeling in the media at the time. But I don't remember the Juanita Broderick allegations of rape being taken particularly seriously at the time, except by factions of the right wing. And that is symptomatic of, A, the way that many women's stories of assault are not taken seriously, and also with the sort of complexity of the moment. What was the left, you know, that should have been perhaps more engaged in determining whether or not there was any veracity there. You know, how are they going to approach this with a president who 
I mean, partway through the term, the left left wasn't so thrilled with Bill Clinton. But this was a real quandary. I do remember the Monica story, and I remember understanding even at the time that while it was complicated because both people in it acknowledged that it was um, consensual, it was a tremendous abuse of power and therefore, I think, absolutely fell in the category of sexual harassment. He was the president of the United States. She was an intern in the White House. But that conversation didn't happen in earnest, and I think it did a lot of harm um, to the credibility and the seriousness with which we took this issue. And I think it's right that we're going back and reexamining it right now. these dark times, there aren't a whole lot of unambiguously positive things you can do to make the world a measurably better place, but there is at least one piece of low-hanging fruit that I always recommend. To help with our shift to a renewable energy future, you can sign up for renewable energy in your home or office. Depending on where you live, renewable energy may even be cheaper than the old fossil fuel sources. And of course, you only have to sign up once and reap the rewards effortlessly indefinitely. If you live or work in New York, Pennsylvania, New Jersey, Maryland, D.C., Delaware, Illinois, Massachusetts, or Ohio, you can sign up with the clean energy company that I have partnered with, Clean Choice Energy. To sign up and support the show by letting them know that I sent you, just visit cleanchoiceenergy.com best. Don't wait. There's nothing stopping you from signing up to use renewable energy right now, and it's easier than you think. Again, visit cleanchoiceenergy.com slash best to get started. When it comes to energy, now you have a choice. Claiming the current system had failed too many students, Education Secretary Betsy DeVos recently announced a change in sexual assault provisions for college campuses. Guidance issued by the Obama administration had underscored that sexual harassment of students, which includes acts of sexual violence, is a form of sex discrimination prohibited by federal civil rights law, Title IX. But DeVos says, quote, survivors, victims of a lack of due process and campus administrators have all told me that the current approach does a disservice to everyone involved, close quote. Media are covering it as sort of an Obama-Trump culture war thing, but what's a better way to talk about what seems to be going on here? Alyssa Peterson is state organizer with Know Your Nine, a survivor and youth-led project that aims to empower students to end sexual and dating violence in their schools. She joins us now by phone from Connecticut. Welcome to Counterspin, Alyssa Peterson. Thank you so much for having me. Well, first, could you explain about this 2011, it's called a Dear Colleague Letter, and the follow-up guidance that Betsy DeVos is talking about rescinding? She and her supporters call it overreach. What is their argument, and what did that letter actually say? Betsy DeVos has absolutely misrepresented the contents of the Dear Colleague Letter, which helped survivors like me access education after we were sexually assaulted on our campuses. 
The Dear Colleague letter, as you stated, clarified that Title IX uh, applies to instances of sexual violence. And for people like me, it was the first time that I had heard anything more than Title IX covers women's sports. For a lot of us, it provided us with hope after we were assaulted. It helped us access the resources that we needed because the Dear Colleague letter told us that our school was required to provide us with counseling, with housing accommodations, with extensions on term papers that really helped many of us stay in school after we were assaulted. So as for her rationale, Betsy DeVos has said that the guidance has failed both sides, which really has misrepresented the survivor position because for many of us, six or seven years ago, our schools were not addressing this issue. The Dear Colleague letter signaled that the federal government took this issue seriously which really helped us take that letter into meetings with our school administrators to change school policies, and we knew that the federal government had our back. And the other sort of major point that DeVos has made is that uh, the campus process is fundamentally unfair to accuse students, but every single example that she's used for that proposition, such as students not receiving notice of their hearing or uh, survivors not being given accommodations, is in fact a violation of the guidance and of Title IX, And if she was acting in good faith, she would enforce the law, just as the Obama administration did when schools were violating the rights of accused students and survivors alike. Well, that's what's so confusing. Certainly what you hear is that the problem that supposedly this action is going to solve is a lack of due process for people who are accused of rape. But if that's in the guidance itself, it seems like the the solution would be to enforce that guidance rather than remove it. Exactly. And Title IX actually requires schools to handle all allegations promptly and equitably. That provides the department with a lot of latitude to make sure that both survivors and accused students are being provided with process. What DeVos and her proponents want is a criminal process, which stacks the deck in favor of accused students rather than the civil rights law that Title IX actually is. That seems to be a point that it turns on. And and it's when you start talking about moving it to a criminal justice position or, you know, why don't we just call the police? Then this other thing comes in. I've seen this subtext of coverage that suggests that somehow concern for survivors of sexual assault is is racist. What is what is that theme? What's going on there? Yeah, no, that that's a really important issue. I think first of all, I want to want to provide listeners with background about why Know Your Nine and other survivors use Title Nine, and it's in part because Title Nine affords victims rights, and sometimes those rights will, for someone to stay in school, they need their rapist removed from their campus because they can't function while he or she is there. So for that reason, Title Nine does have this disciplinary component where someone can be removed from campus. The reason that Know Your Nine opts for a campus system instead of a prison system is because we believe that the prison system is fundamentally violent and racist, so we don't want to double down on that system, and we see Title IX as creating an alternative to incarceration. So then if you turn to the individuals who are alleging that the campus system is racist towards accused students are the same individuals who want to dismantle the campus system entirely. So I think the lead critic of this is Emily Yaffe who wrote a series of very searing Atlantic articles. But when you dig into them, you realize that the data that she's relying on are a series of Google alerts that she's set, which for me should not be relied on in policymaking. We need more data than that. And Emily Yaffe has also suggested previously that survivors should be accountable for drinking when they're sexually assaulted. So she's consistently opposed the idea that schools should handle these issues at all. 
the other groups that have also levied this charge, as you said, support the idea that a survivor should be pushed into the criminal justice system and that schools should have no role. But I can think of nothing more racist and harmful than requiring survivors, particularly survivors of color, to go into a criminal justice system that is completely biased against them and is also biased against people who are accused of sexual assault. We are concerned that there is bias in the campus system, but we're concerned that there's bias for both survivors and accused students. And just as handle other civil rights issues, we need schools to have data, which Know Your Nine has called for schools to release aggregate data for two years now, talking about racial impacts and discipline. And if there is a disparity, the Department of Education needs to enforce that, just like they need to end the school-to-prison pipeline in K-12 schools, just like they need to stop push-out of LGBT schools. This should be considered a civil rights issue, but one that maintains the campus system and should be enforced. Well, let me just ask you about media. The media are sort of covering it as almost like an identity politics or like a culture war debate. But I find it interesting that Meanwhile, many colleges seem to be saying we're going to carry on with the guidance that we have, which suggests that outside the sort of talking heads arena, they find this Obama era guidance useful and and workable. Yeah, I think that's a really good point. It's in part because the changes that Betsy DeVos has been pushing are very radical that seem to presuppose that schools should not have a role in the system or imposing a criminal-like process on universities which they don't feel comfortable executing, whereas a civil rights role, they are feeling more comfortable in that role. And I think the second point is schools have really invested a lot of resources into their policy. They've talked to members of their community. They've worked with survivors to refine the policy. They don't want to throw all of that progress and work in the trash. And then also they know that if they do try to roll back their policies that afford protections to accused students and survivors, Students will rise up, and just like students have been very vigilant using the media, we are watching for any school that tries to weaken protections for survivors and accused students. They have student backlash to fear, which I think is a major reason why they're keeping their policies in place. Actor Aaron Rapp uncovered uh, details of how he was sexually assaulted by Kevin Spacey. Uh, as we expected, it has opened the floodgates for other male actors in Hollywood to share their stories. Now, um, interestingly enough, uh, the, Guardian, the Guardian is reporting that um, more Hollywood actors are speaking of rampant problems of male abusers targeting other men in the industry. And I think it's, it's relevant and it's worth talking about because a lot of the emphasis is placed on female victims, but there are a ton of male victims as well. And as I've mentioned before, there's usually even more stigma toward them coming out and talking about their experiences. And I want to, um, you know, show them some admiration for their courage and coming out and talking about what they've experienced. So Alex 
Winter, uh, who's an actor based out of London, uh, talked about what he also experienced as a gay male actor who was uh, preyed upon by other uh, males who had more power than him. He says, it's a very taboo subject. I don't know of any boys in any pocket of the entertainment industry that do not encounter some form of predatory behavior. It's really not a safe environment. Wow, okay, so there's another actor who spoke out, Wilson Cruz, who's a gay actor who plays Raps, interestingly enough, Raps love interest in Star Trek, recently spoke out about sexual harassment at a gay, lesbian, and straight education network awards event, saying that an older gentleman made offers when he was young, adding, I did not take them up on it, it was uncomfortable. I was in my 20s and I thought, is this what one does, right? Yeah. And then he was worried that his decision not to act on it would hurt hurt his career, which I think a lot of people do worry about. Yeah, and that's why a lot of these people prey on on younger people, whether they're male or female, because they think they're not gonna know what the standard is. They don't know what's right and wrong, and I could pretend like it's normal, and it's and they have no power. And when they have no power, it's easier to take advantage of them. And in the movie industry, unfortunately, in the entertainment industry overall, the gatekeepers in the old days before the internet had all of the power. So when you have that kind of power disparity and you put in uh, honestly men into the equation and from time to time women do it as well, but it's far more prevalent among men, both gay and straight. Um, it's, a, it's a dynamic for a lot of abuse and harassment. And so it's not at all surprising. Look, I, I've told you guys about this uh, over the last couple of weeks, just because I, I, I kept hearing from uh, several different people, ne- never anything specific, and they never named anyone, right? But they, uh, for years, folks who come in here for interviews, etc., have been like, "Whoa, you know, one day that'll come out uh, how much it happens among you know uh, in in gay Hollywood," and and so I just you have to remember, there's also victims who are also either straight or gay right. who've been harassed by by those uh, powerful men. I don't think anyone's sexual orientation is any indication as to whether or not they're likely to be a sexual predator. So let's just get that out of the way. Yeah, that is a ridiculous ju- um, notion. However, I think that um, oftentimes people who are in positions of power will abuse it if they think that it's okay to prey on those who don't have power, right? Again, sexual orientation has nothing to do with it. Harvey Weinstein, obviously not gay, right? But Neither you see Bill this- O'Reilly, Roger right. Ailes, Bill Cosby. So uh, that's exactly our point, which is that uh, being gay doesn't magically make you not a part of the you know human interactions and family. Of course, they have the same reactions. Power corrupts, absolute power corrupts, absolutely. To think that they are either better or worse is preposterous. And unfortunately, we're seeing some of the damage that was done in this situation as well. And it's time for those men to speak up, and they are, to fight back so that it doesn't happen to the next generation. We are off to the races in our two-in-one winter fundraiser, which is both a fundraiser to fight climate change through Climate Ride and also a membership drive to sustain the show. The first batch of Climate Ride donors have already chipped in, so a huge thanks to JJ, uh, that's the last initial J, not to be confused with 
JJ or something like that, Alan W, Kenna H, Katie Ann, Andrew L, and Nick R for starting us off strong with donations ranging from 25 bucks up to 75. Uh, the ultimate goal is to raise $5,000 to support the fundraising efforts of Climate Ride, which in turn provides fundraising support for dozens of national and local climate and active transport advocacy groups. Uh, so we're just getting started, but we have done this before. I have no doubt we'll reach that goal, so no panic there. Uh, as for the membership drive, I have an initial goal of 750 patrons on Patreon, and that's donors of any size. That's a dollar a month and up. And uh, at 750 patrons, our plan is to double the number of bonus episodes we do. So if you're an existing member who still needs to make the switch over to Patreon, or if you've been meaning to sign up and just needed a little extra push, let this fundraiser be it. And don't forget, when you support both campaigns, you get limited time access to our awesome apparel items. So you're not going to want to miss out on that. For all the details, just head to bestoftheleft.com and click the huge winter fundraiser banner on the homepage. And thanks in advance for your support. Now, we've talked exclusively up until this moment about women, women facing sexual harassment in the workplace. And that, similar to uh, the conversation around rape and sexual assault, almost always is discussed only in terms of women as the victims and men as the perpetrators. I myself, as a woman in the workplace, have experienced probably more than I can count incidents of sexual harassment. In all of these cases, it has been men. Um, but that isn't the only face of sexual harassment. And that is something Thing that your report, but also you personally have looked into, I'm, I'm finding this, particularly in this moment, um, to be connected to what I felt and what many others in the media felt was a, a different reaction and a different tone when the accusations against Kevin Spacey came to light because they were by men. What do we know about sexual harassment against men in the workplace? So two things. Number one, about 16% of our complaints of sexual harassment come from men. Now, some of that might be men being harassed by other men. A few, and I've seen cases of men being harassed by women. And by the way, harassment is not just from a supervisor to a subordinate. A lot of harassment is from coworkers. And one of the cases was a coworker that kept asking this guy for a date and wouldn't say no. Yeah. One of my own personal experiences as well. And actually, in that case, it was a woman. Right. So, so it, it can take a lot of different forms. It can take a lot of different forms. A lot of the cases actually do have to deal with men harassing other men. And then there's a second layer of shame in terms of coming forward. So I think we need to understand as a country that harassment, sexual harassment, happens to both women and men. And that actually harassment happens on all bases, race, religion, disability. And that's something our report focused on. However, what I have discovered in terms of talking to people, that sometimes it's just useful to start with the sexual harassment against women. Somehow that brings people into the conversation. And then it is our obligation mm -hmm. to push forward and say, if we can change the workplace culture, if employers and employees take the steps to change workplace culture so that harassment doesn't happen, unwelcome behavior doesn't happen, it will help everyone. So 
sort of the curb cuts mentality that when you're fighting for rights for one uh, uh, frequently marginalized community, it can actually have widespread benefits. Absolutely. It's what we call in disability rights universal design. If you make it work for people with disabilities, a lot of other people will benefit. So let's talk about solutions. Let's talk about how we get there. Um, your The EEOC's report looks into a number of different uh, kind of current solutions or the solutions people think have been solutions. I sort of hesitate to call them solutions because part of what you find is that uh, the trainings, that kind of annual sexual harassment training that everyone knows, everyone groans about when they see it on the schedule or see the email come from HR, right? You, you look at that and you say, well, those actually haven't been very successful as prevention tools. Really, they're sort of, you know, management kind of covering their ass saying, let's limit some liability. That's why those get held. That's really what they do. What do you think could work, and are we seeing anything already in place or or in use in the workplace that actually does work as a prevention tool? So this is what I feel is one of the real contributions of our report, that we we took the motto of James Baldwin of not everything that is faced can be changed, but nothing can be changed until it is faced. Mm -hmm. So the first half of the report is really about what's going on. The second part is about how do we change it, with no illusions about how difficult it is to change. Training is absolutely important, but it's only important as essentially step four of a five-step comprehensive process. So don't take from the report that training isn't essential. It's just what type of training and where is it in the comprehensive effort. And that it can't be the only thing we do. It's so cannot be the only thing you do. If it's the only thing you do and nothing else right is happening, people will groan and it will reinforce their cynicism. So where do you do it? I remember often hearing it starts at the top and I often felt like, oh, well, that's very helpful. I mean, like, <laughs> thank you for sharing. What does that mean? Yeah. And that's what our report drilled down on. So it does stop at start at the top. It starts with leadership feeling a sense of urgency of wanting to find out if there's harassment in their workplace and stopping it. Has to start with the leaders caring about stopping it and communicating that in words. Step one. Step two. Employees hear leaders say lots of things. Employees have to believe the leaders are authentic that they mean what they say. Okay, step three, how do leaders do that? Number one, they make it a point to find out what's going on in their workplace. If they see our report that says 70% of people are not even coming forward, how are they going to find out if they have a problem? Our recommendation is that they do an anonymous survey. That doesn't ask, have you experienced sexual harassment or other forms of harassment that lists the behaviors? Have you experienced any of this? Educate themselves. Two, put into place the policies. Here's the policy of what we will not accept. Don't spend a lot of legalese about what's illegal. No, this is what we won't accept. Here's how you report it. Have a reporting and investigation system that works. Okay. And then, most importantly, accountability. You can say all the words you want, but if people don't see action, they will not believe that you are authentic, 
the harassment will continue. So I'm gonna I'm gonna come back at you here with um, uh, a little bit of the uh, devil's advocate, but also but meaning it um, mm-hmm. because I, I, all of that sounds great, right? It it if we could just get all those things to happen, then boom, we would have way less sexual harassment in the workplace. It makes sense intuitively, but even getting to step one feels like I don't even know how we get there when we've uh, in many cases got um, uh, senior leadership at we saw this at Fox News we we've seen this now as you know throughout Hollywood people actually knowing and being totally aware of what's going on but sweeping it under the rug and and using tools like uh, like mandatory confidential arbitration which sounds like legal gobbledygook right <laughs> I apologize I don't know how often on the show for being a recovering lawyer but but it means literally legally being able to sweep it under the rug when that's the instinct on the part of people who in senior positions are aware of what's going on how do we even get to that five-step process that you talked about see here is where i think we are at a tipping point Uh i really think so because the incentives for top leaders may now be changing Especially for what we call in the report the superstar harassers, someone of high value to the company, the leadership often made the cost-benefit analysis that it was more costly to take the complaint seriously and get rid of the person than to simply pay off the people making the complaints. I think that leaders are now realizing that might not be a smart cost-benefit analysis and that it is worth it for them to start taking these complaints seriously. I remember hearing from some people, well, I'm not going to go to HR. HR is not your friend. HR is just working for the company. And I say, they sure are working for the company. And you know what? To protect the company, they need to take complaints seriously. And I'm talking about through the entire level of the organization. So it's almost like we're going to flip what helps the company. Mm. Move it away from that short-term cost-benefit analysis of what will help the companies to sweep it under the rug to what will help the company is to stop something before it goes out of control. And is that a function of policy change that we have yet to see and that we need to see? Or is that more rooted in the culture change that we're watching happen as we speak because accusers are being believed and because this tidal wave is happening right now? I believe it is absolutely an attitudinal cultural change, not a policy change. They have all had their policies for years, especially the big companies. It's about changing the incentives. And I will tell you, if a leadership of a company, for-profit, non-profit, actually holds people accountable and people in the organization see that someone has been disciplined, even up to and including termination, that will send ripples through the organization. And accountability is with regard to two groups of people. One group is smaller group, the people who are actually engaging in the harassment, regardless of high hal- regardless of their value. The other group that ne- needs to be kept uh, kept ca- the other group that needs to be held accountable are the frontline supervisors, mm-hmm. the managers who hear the complaints because their reaction often is to belittle the person, see, whether they were at blame. Let's talk about what you were doing in this interaction, right? 
if they are now rewarded for actually taking a complaint seriously and going through whatever the policy says, as opposed to sweeping it under the rug, we will start seeing a difference. the momentum on these stories is first of all there's so many stories to be told that what's coming out is and is so upsetting um and in many cases so persuasive that it hasn't fully turned yet but you can sense everybody wants it to turn back to how it's comfortable and i'm saying this about both men and women i see many women in my social media spheres worrying that this is going to this is turning into a witch hunt that this is and that's always the term that's used you know so yes, that's going to happen at any moment. And then of course there are professional repercussions for women after that, because as long as men still have the power, but then they're, they're told to be wary of the women who might come and misinterpret their, you know, innocent gestures as harassment, women will, you know, in very subtle ways and some not so subtle ways probably start to suffer. There'll be less mentorship of women by men. Perhaps women will be hired less or sent on work trips less frequently. I mean, those kinds of implications are are long-term down the road implications, and they're going to be in place as long as men have a disproportionate share of the economic and professional power, which they continue to do. So yes, I'm very, it is, this is a moment in which there are so many contradictory things happening that, you know, it is both thrilling and horrifying. And I feel all those ways about it. What kind of structural changes could happen to channel this immense energy for the good into permanent change? Well, I mean, the biggest structural change and the only thing about which I have any long-term hope is actually acknowledging how much of this stems from patriarchal, white patriarchal power structure and working to actually reverse that power structure, which of course is also the hardest and most long-term project. And that, you know, in the piece that I wrote about this, the long piece that I wrote about this, I actually cite the elections that recently happened, the 2017 special elections in which you saw so many women, many of them angry women, winning elections against, in many cases, their actual sort of male oppressors, the uh, Danica Rome, who won her special election, um, she's a transgender candidate who won a special election against a white man who had put forth one of the anti-trans bathroom bills. Built himself as homophobe in chief. Yes, homoph- homophobe in chief. And she beat him. She replaced him. And that uh, is also true. There's a woman in New Jersey who was angry after a white male lawmaker made fun of the Women's March and said, why aren't those women home cooking dinner? And she ran against him and she beat him. She took a seat. And so I write in my piece that that's not just retaliation, that's replacement. And that is actually, if you look at the power structures, political, professional, economic, and you say, actually what we need to do is end the power imbalance that permits this kind of behavior to persist over centuries, right? That is going to be the only solution, but that is years in the making. I mean, I certainly, there are a lot of women running for office in 2018, but this is not going to be solved in one year or one election cycle or just by looking at electoral politics. This is solved in, this is only to be solved in, you know, when it reaches to every 
company and also when it reaches beyond the elite professions, because this is something I also am concerned about, about this moment, not to take away from the, the horrifying stories that we're learning about so many of, of these men, but mostly we're learning about them, about very powerful men in very high earning and elite professions. And what we're not hearing about for the most part are women who are working in factories, in warehouses, on rest, in restaurants, in the service industry, the tip service industry where harassment is perhaps at its worst. I saw that 700,000 farm workers have made a statement in support of the women of Hollywood. We need to get the women of Hollywood to act in support of the women farm workers. There are all kinds of voices um, who are not yet present in this conversation. And I think that that is, I think that's another crucial thing that we need to address. And we need to address that the gender power imbalances, the economic imbalances that, that leave women susceptible to this kind of treatment and with limited resources in terms of fighting against it, those have to be reversed sort of in every profession, in every workplace. And that is, that is generations worth of work ahead of us. And it's, it's what we need to do, but it's not something that's going to be fixed in the next, you know, six months, 18 months, 18 years. We have to just, it's what we have to continue to work toward. And if there's something that can come out of this moment, it is, I hope a reckoning with how dramatically unjust those power imbalances are and that helps to undergird everyone's work toward reversing those power imbalances or not reversing them but but getting to something resembling actual gender equality i don't need women to have the disproportionate share of power i need women to have an equal share of power We've just heard clips today, starting with On the Media, giving us the history of the creation of the idea of sexual harassment. Backtalk expressed mixed feelings toward the purpose of the hashtag MeToo campaign. Ezra Klein spoke with Rebecca Traister about the legacy of the Clinton years on the discussion about sexual harassment. Counterspin spoke with Elisa Peterson about the changes being made to the process of dealing with sexual assault on campus. The Young Turks highlighted the sexual harassment of men and boys. Off Kilter spoke with a commissioner of the U.S. Equal Employment Opportunity Commission, or EEOC, to discuss how workplaces can put systems in place that succeed in cutting down on workplace harassment. And finally, we just heard The Breach also speaking with Rebecca Traster about the thrilling and horrifying fallout of the Harvey Weinstein effect. As always, you can find links to each of these segments in the show notes for easy reference and sharing. And now, we'll hear from you. Hi, Jay. This is Marguerite, previously from North Carolina, now in super northern California. And I am calling about the gun discussion, um, really in response to that Alabama woman. And I really want to appreciate Nick from California for bringing evidence into this, because we do know that based on evidence, um, guns do not make anyone safer and actually make them more at risk to die from gunfire. So I do thank um, Nick for bringing evidence into this. And I did want to bring up a couple of things. First, I want to thank people who, the fact that you actually said, what's the problem with white guys? Because I do feel like that's a demographic that we don't study because it's kind of considered as the quote unquote default. And if anyone wants to think about that, there's a really good series called Seeing White, looking at 
white males and what is kind of leading to this increased gun violence. And then, you know, one of the things we I want to mention is that the idea of, you know, taking up arms as the, you know, to go against the proletariat won't necessarily be useful, nor is it actually going to work, especially for black and brown people. Um, we know that black and brown people are more likely to die from gunfire, especially state-issued gunfire, if there are guns around. We can look at all of the examples we have. Linda Castile, the woman who died from giving off a, not died, but was in prison for giving off a warning shot. So for black and brown people, it may not necessarily help. However, one of the things that we've always joked about around about is the fact that if more black and brown people actually start buying guns, we actually might get gun legislation, i.e. Black Panthers. So just a couple of thoughts. No one had said these things yet. Um, just looking at the relationship of, you know, race and guns, as well as looking at, again, what's the deal with white guys? So... Thanks for what's here, Lynn. I look forward to seeing more conversations. Thanks for listening, everyone. Thanks to the volunteers who helped gather clips to make this show possible. Thanks to Amanda Hoffman for all of her work on our social media outlets and activism segments. And thanks to all those who called into the voicemail line. If you'd like to leave a comment or question of your own to be played on the show, simply record a message at 202-999-3991. And I actually have a quick bonus clip for you that, frankly, this could have gone in the main show. Uh, it's a really short clip. It, 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 I stripped most of the context out of this uh, one piece of it, uh, just because I want to highlight it and talk about it real quick. Uh, this is Rebecca Traster again. You heard from her a couple of times in today's episode, and although I, you don't need me to tell you this, uh, the person she is referring to is Hillary Clinton, as this clip starts. When I profiled her after the election this past spring, um, she talked to me about the calculations she'd been doing in her head when Donald Tr in the debate when Donald Trump was actually following her in a kind of sort of grotesque and predatory way on stage, you know, sort of looming behind her, breathing heavily. And and it was a terribly discomforting dynamic to watch as an audience as well. And and she talked about how discomforting it was for her, but that the internal calculations she was doing, can I turn around and tell this guy to back off? But she was understanding what uh, the kind of things that all women, and this returns us to the conversation about sexual harassment and how and and uh, an assault and how it's not always in the action that we're judged. It is not just about the harm done by somebody grabbing our ass or groping us at a company retreat or propositioning us at work. That's not where it ends. It's how we react that that helps to determine our professional fate. And that's an element that is, really gets left out of this discussion of sexual harassment. Yes, there may be harm and damage done by the sort of diminution and degradation of, you know, what these men do when they when they grab us or harass us or assault us. But there is also the harm done depending on how we choose to react. Do we do we laugh it off? Does that make us complicit in them doing it to us again or to someone else in the future? Do we lodge a complaint? Does that marginalize us at work? Does that make us unlikable? Does that make us the humorless woman in the office who's unlikely to be asked to go on the work trip that would gain her more professional status? What does Hillary Clinton do when Donald Trump stands behind her and breathes heavily and kind of paws the ground? What does she do? And she described very powerfully um, 
the calculation's in her head. If I turn around and yell at him and tell him to back off, it's going to redound negatively to me. I have been a woman in the world long enough to understand that if I turn around and yell at him, I'm going to I'm going to pay the price for it. And I think that is a real insight into the kind of um energy, thinking, labor that women are doing all the time. And then that's part of this conversation about how pervasive and ubiquitous harassment is, that it's not just about the act. It is also about the calculations we're constantly doing about how we're supposed to be responding to those kinds of power abuses and the impact that our that how we react, how we respond has on our professional future and our and our standing. So I, I play this clip now, um, besides the fact that I think it's a, a good clip that makes an interesting point, but I, I play it now because it reminds me of a story that I told on the show years ago. I, actually, in fact, I think I told it on the members only bonus show. So good chance you haven't heard it. And uh, it was a really simple story. I was just talking about how I had walked home one day and I, I had a really straight shot from the metro to my apartment building. And as happens in cities a lot, you, you sort of fall into step with people. You know, someone turns onto the road that you're already walking on. And then before you know it, you have someone walking right in front of you or right behind you. And uh, I don't know about anyone else. Lots of thoughts go through my mind in, in situations like that. And in this one instance that I decided to tell a story about, a young woman had fallen into step with me and we just ended up on the same road and it, we sort of, you know, get, got off the main thoroughfare and then we were on this, you know, not exactly a side road, but like just a smaller road with fewer pedestrians and she was just a few steps in, in front of me and, and I was walking by myself uh, that particular day and so being a politically minded progressive dude, the ideas that start going through my head are, oh no, she's going to be nervous about having a guy walking a few steps behind her. You know, she either saw me before she turned on the street or she can sense me or hear my footsteps or whatever. And, and so I started having stress about that. And now the way I told the story, uh, you know, I'm not, I'm not going to try to recreate the, the magic of the original, but, uh, for fun, I told the story as a satire. Now, everything I said was true about this walk home and, and all the thoughts I was having. But because I, you know, I thought it'd be more fun to satirize it, I, I pretended as though I were sort of the victim in this situation, that I had all this mental stress and, and I was expending all this mental energy, mental labor, worrying about appearing as a potential predator or making this woman nervous through no fault of my own and and you know basically you know laid out the story of how i uh, decided I, like i needed to slow down to give her more space and i think at one point i may have even crossed to the other side of the road to make it seem like okay he's not even going to the same place as me i don't have to worry about it but then to heighten the tensions Turned out she also crossed to the other side of the street. I think she crossed after me, though, but she was in front of me. So I don't know if she saw that I had crossed. And boy, what if she crossed to the other other side of the street? Boy, I mean, what if she crossed to the other side of the street and then sensed behind her that I was still there? That would only make her think even more that uh, you know, that I was following her in some sort of creepy way. And and so I, I tell this whole story about how traumatic it was for me 
to have been in that situation and to have all of these uh, stressful thoughts about not wanting to seem like a predator and not wanting someone to be uncomfortable uh, because of my presence. Um, now, I, I think, you know, based on that clip we just listened to and, and everything we all know, uh, the, the point comes across pretty clearly. Like, I get it. I, I'm That was satire. I'm not the, the victim in that situation. And uh, I think this is this is the kind of story that men who don't quite understand how this stuff works get frustrated because, you know, they, they get frustrated that men are seen as potential predators. They're uh, frustrated that men have, you know, they, they would take that satirical story and say, no, no, that's true. It It is frustrating and it is stressful to feel like you have to watch what you do or watch what you say. And, uh, and, and where, where the point gets completely missed is how much more mental energy goes into worrying about one's own safety than about having to be concerned about how you are perceived by others. Uh, you know, men generally in that situation are not the ones who are going to, uh, you know, feel a risk for their own safety. And this whole concept, I think is summed up really nicely. Like a, a quote that I just came across, uh, within the last day or two is on Twitter, someone named Clara Jeffrey, who honestly, that name sounds a little bit familiar and her, her name is verified, but I, I don't know who that is. Uh, but she just wrote this quote, saying, not all men are monsters, but men are a minefield. Not every inch has power to devastate, but but devastation lies hidden everywhere. And I, I think that, that just really nicely lays out the, the playing field we have here. And that, you know, the whole, like, not all men argument versus the all women are walking through a minefield argument. Yeah, sure. There might be nothing wrong with you, but there, we're still walking in a minefield and there's no way to tell the difference between, uh, you know, a, a mine and a safe patch of ground to walk. But all of this leads me to yet another thought that I've had much more recently. And I'm going to play another clip for you. This is not a clip that could have gone in today's episode. It's actually a small portion of a clip from a recent episode about racism. And I, I started to see a parallel in, in these issues. And so I want to play this clip and introduce the concept in a new way. One of the things that is important to understand is that there is a really poisonous dynamic in this country between white people. And that white people who are not privileged feel belittled, they feel stereotyped, they feel openly ridiculed, and they are really, really angry because of what elite white people are doing to them. Now, because of this poisonous dynamic among white people, guess who's paying the price? You got to fix the dynamic among white people. And the way to fix the dynamic of white, uh, among white people is to stop the indignity, which is not going to be easy. But just saying, you guys are all racist, classist, misogynist, and, and stupid, by the way, that's actually not helping people of color. That's hurting people of color because that is feeding this poisonous dynamic among white people. Now, if you say to these white folks who are directing their anger at, I mean, it ain't my problem. It ain't your problem. And we are getting blamed 
totally get that. My interest, though, is in not in figuring out who to blame more effectively, but in turning around the dynamic. If you want to turn that around that dynamic, you need to address people's dignity issues and you need to address their economic issues at the same time as you say, you know, racism is just not someplace we as Americans go. So as you just heard, she's talking about race and making a a nuanced point about how the anti-racist fight sort of owes it to itself almost to address the concerns of white people, not because it is the job of people of color to inform white people, but because it is in the self-interest of the movement for black lives or the more broad uh, anti-racist movement to get white people to understand what the hell is going on, to get them out of this toxic environment where they feel suddenly victimized based on their race rather than understanding the broader concepts at play and and see their place in it. And so maybe this is obvious already, but I'm bringing this up because I'm seeing a parallel with feminism and let's just call it the men's rights movement as as the backlash to feminism. And in a similar way, I wouldn't argue that it is feminist job to educate men for the benefit of those men. But it may be in the self-interest of the feminist movement, the gender equality movement, to get these people sort of on the same page, to get them to understand that feminism or gender equality is not a movement that exclusively focuses on the damage done to women, that it can incorporate and include a broader understanding of how gender dynamics hurts all people even though it hurts some people more. And, you know, I was glad to hear from a couple of different uh, interviews, people talking about harassment and abuse inflicted against men. And I made a point of including those segments in today's show as part of that idea to very intentionally reflect that these kinds of gender dynamics do not affect only some people. The concern is that those who don't have a deep understanding of these dynamics, but feel themselves being impacted. So, for instance, a guy who has been the victim of harassment or assault may take a passing glance at feminism and think that they are not on his side, to think that the whole movement is focused so exclusively on women that they must not care about male victims, and to take that misconceived notion and turn it in a toxic direction. So they end up looking for someone who will hear their concerns and inevitably end up somewhere like the men's rights movement. It's not an exact corollary by any stretch, but it's the same sort of dynamic that's at play uh, for people who end up in the like actual alt-right white supremacist movement, people who are themselves victims who don't see an outlet and are sort of they see a hand reaching out and that they are welcomed into a community that has been shunned by the rest of society but that becomes a tight-knit group of people who end up cultivating terrible a historical a factual ideas um, but because they are so insular it, they end up feeding on themselves and convincing themselves that they're right and everyone else is brainwashed so I know I've already dipped my hand a little bit and, and given my 
very surface level uh, ideas on this subject. Uh, Amanda and I have been talking about this behind the scenes, and, and we plan to go into a lot more detail in the next uh, members-only bonus episodes. We're, we're gearing up for that. But those are my initial thoughts. And, and what I want more than anything is just some reactions. I would love to know what you think generally about the concept or if it's totally wrong, why is it wrong? But if it's right, then what do you do with that information? How do you proceed with that as as you know, not the foundation, but but as part of an integrated understanding of what it means to be a feminist who is working for gender equality, uh, how do you incorporate having conversations about gender dynamics that includes on a regular basis negative impacts for men? Because I know the argument so often is any time given to the problems of men is time being taken away from the problems of women and the problems that women have are worse. <laughs> they are worse and they are greater in number. So I understand the instinct to focus exclusively on, on the issues of women. It, it was mentioned in today's show, uh, described basically as, as similar to the way we deal with uh, disability. It's called universal design. You focus on the most adversely impacted and when you solve the problems for the most adversely impacted, it automatically solves problems for everyone else. So I totally get that as a tactical strategy for making progress. But if as a side effect, you end up fomenting even more of an anti-feminist movement in, in response, how, how do we balance that? If you have thoughts, I would absolutely love to hear them. The number to dial, as always, 202-999-3991. That is going to be it for today. Thanks to everyone for listening. Thanks, of course, to all those who have become a member. They are making uh, donations on Patreon. They are signing up for our winter fundraiser, donating to my climate ride campaign, all of that. Thanks to everyone who is uh, getting involved. Of course, everyone can support the show more generally just by telling everyone you know about it and leaving us glowing reviews on iTunes and Facebook to help others find the show. You can also help us in our mission to aggregate and amplify the best progressive media by joining up with us on Facebook and Twitter and helping to share all of the great content we're putting out there. And for details on the show itself, including links to all of the sources and music used in this and every episode, all that information can always be found in the show notes on the blog. So coming to you from far outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast, coming to you every Tuesday and Friday, thanks entirely to the members and donors to the show from bestoftheleft.com. Stories and forget who it is with who.